I V M. The city of Delhi has started charging high rates for parking, but is this enough to beat congestion and pollution? After ten years, the India-US Japan-Australia quadrilateral is getting revived. What does this mean for India and Asia? It's follow-up week. Welcome to the latest episode of the Pragati Podcast, where we want to update you on past issues that we brought up in the podcast before. We're your hosts, Hamsini Hariharan and Pavan Shrinath. Hamsini, we are doing this episode today because we've recorded about eighteen episodes so far, and covered a range of issues from China to storm drains to the space program. So we. Want to pick a couple of issues where uh, the needle might have moved, and we want to see where we are at now. Not just that. In this week's episode, for the first time, we're also going to be responding to listeners' questions. Yes, I mean it's a delight to have people uh, ask us questions on uh, what's happening. It's always a pleasure to talk about it. And don't forget, uh, there's also a cheat sheet at the end where we talk about a dodgy scam on land in Bangalore. To start with. In episode sixteen, we discussed parking policies in Indian cities. We talked about how free parking is morally problematic as it involves a transfer of wealth, that is, public wealth, to the rich. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also talked about how Delhi has started moves where it's finally going in for paid parking, uh, and uh, this is seen as one of the many moves to curb the horrific pollution levels that are there in Delhi right now. So what has happened since is the parking policy has been introduced hmm. uh but you know it's disappointing on several counts why so the first thing is what we discussed was that curbside parking must be charged and charged through the roof yeah. right because once you charge curbside parking everything else follows right mm-hmm. i mean whatever parking lots whatever other things are there will follow so far while the parking policy seemed to be wide ranging hmm. the enforcement has been that in New Delhi and uh, Delhi corporations parking lots hmm. the rates have increased dramatically so a car uh, they are charging about 80 rupees per hour for parking in these parking lots right. and even for a two wheeler it's 40 rupees per hour that's great news. this is great news right but this is happening only in parking lots not just that but they've also hiked the rates in the metro parking lots which is extremely counterproductive So now if you want to travel by metro hmm. uh, and you take a car some ways before you get onto the metro station hmm. it's horribly expensive because you're paying like 80 rupees per hour for your car hmm. then for the metro hmm. and then you're coming back so it doesn't make sense anymore so in a sense uh, though the information's currently anecdotal hmm. it seems likely that there will be people who shift from using the metro to using the car because the parking rates at the metro station are very high which defeats the entire purpose of paid parking in yes. the city what's the point of doing this if they're not charging curbside right yeah so uh, it's about charging curbside so now what's happened is uh, you have the new delhi corporations all trying to do whatever they can you have the national green tribunal which is this problematic legal body which has come in and said its own things mm-hmm. so what has happened is probably the pressure on curbside parking is even more now hmm. because that is still informally managed right. and people don't want to park in these parking lots hmm. uh, the second is the natural amount of uh, opposition that you would see to any such move hmm. and you have the national green tribunal that is questioning the governments of delhi saying why aren't you providing adequate parking uh, 
areas okay so what can we do to change no no so the, it all goes back to this idea that if you charge curbside parking hmm. and if your land market dynamics are good hmm. then automatically over time more parking uh, area will be created hmm. right but uh, the problem in delhi is that first of all land is very very tightly regulated hmm. so the city provides the parking too it's not like there's a lot of private parking that is being provided hmm. outside of maybe malls and a few other places so in that sense um charging more for parking is not giving the kind of benefits that you ought to get from it so for delhi's new parking policy to be successful hmm. i'm hoping that the government is thinking of this long term hmm. where you need to change hearts and minds right i mean you're suddenly asking people to ch- uh, pay a bomb for parking hmm. and uh, so that's going to take a lot of people off hmm. some of the news coming from delhi is that in a few such parking lots hmm. um the attendants who are supposed to charge for parking are not showing up because it's a pain you have uh, commuters who come shout at you uh, i mean arguably in delhi privilege plays a much higher role uh, and you know so it's really really hard it doesn't sound like the best job <laughs> it doesn't sound like a good job so the question is should the government have also recontracted uh, this process of doing parking enforcement as we had discussed earlier the idea is that you take an area and you give the monopoly over the rights of curbside parking to one entity and then you collect money from them mm-hmm. and uh, it's that entity's job to enforce the monopoly so one of the things that happens is if curbside parking goes up if there are people dawdling on one lane before you know if you have a driver sitting in the car then technically parking charges may not apply you know there are all these fuzzy things that happen yeah, in india yeah. so i think they need to be tackled patiently and i hope that the delhi government has the interest and seriousness to do this and the problem is that they seem to be going back to old ideas mm-hmm. like odd even again mm-hmm. uh and uh, i think getting lost in this craziness that is tackling pollution in delhi yeah it is a sort of a long term cultural behavioral societal Absolutely. change that needs to be done and to me that happens only when you do curbside enforcement apartment side enforcement everywhere and it's a city wide thing that hey you need to think about mm-hmm. parking and you need to think about paying for it Cool. I'm going to actually go back to something that you said a little earlier about the National Green Tribunal and how you know it's doing some problematic things. Why are these things problematic? What is it doing? So let me just say a few things. Okay. So this is by the National Green Tribunal Chairperson Justice Swatantar Kumar. Okay. So he says that the hike in parking fees will only benefit the contractors and will stress people by encouraging them to park vehicles on the roadside instead. Okay. you have a judge making comments like this so the fact that a parking policy is first of all being commented on by a judge by circumcised this way is deeply problematic mm. for me and then basically the judge has questioned the seriousness of the government on odd and even and all sorts of things now i understand that there's a right to life issue here given the extent of air pollution mm. but it's deeply concerning when judges get involved in executive decision making and uh, the national green tribunal for better or worse seems to be delhi's green tribunal <laughs> uh, though they have done nasty things for other places as well yeah. 
and uh, there's a problem when you have a one size diktat coming from an unelected judge with weak access to information and it's beyond their competence frankly mm. i mean there is some other comment about how uh, stating that the two wheelers are among the worst polluters the two judge bench said that there should be no exception to uh, any two wheeler from the ambit of odd even right why is the judge making this decision i don't know if two wheelers are the worst polluters i don't think so so um this has happened in the past too so there is a even a societal need to seek a judicial solution to a lot of our problems mm-hmm. right the mm-hmm. whole pil idea yeah. public interest litigation stems from mm-hmm. uh, there and it has resulted in problems ever since people started doing this mm-hmm. uh, for example there is a supreme court ruling that within 30 meters of any lake boundary uh you can have no construction hmm. and there was another pil fought uh, i think where they extended this to 70 meters now the reality is in most urban lakes there's already construction yeah. that is within 70 70 meters is a big big number right i mean you have highways and other things that are running next to it what happens is local solutions are prevented by this one size diktat hmm. right uh, supposing there's a local community next to a lake which hmm. doesn't have access to water doesn't have access to say toilets hmm. and they might be breaking the fence and going to the lake to you know do the needful hmm. uh and currently it's not possible to say put up temporary toilets outside or permanent toilets outside because there is this rule saying you cannot construct within 70 or 30 meters of a lake boundary so this was done ostensibly mm. uh, in uh, infinite wisdom of mm. saying that look a lake encroachment is a big problem in our cities and something must be done mm. so let us as the supreme court come in and say no you should not do this right or you've had similar pronouncements by the green tribunal mm. and this is a big problem because all legal solutions are one size fits all hmm. so it's sort of worse than the central government deciding local policy it's a central court deciding local policy yeah in that case do you think this is a sort of judicial overreach just undermining the entire effort of what they're doing in delhi uh, definitely and um, i think it just makes the problem worse rather than better mm. some people still like this idea because somebody is holding the government accountable but this form of accountability is so weak and so warped mm. uh, that it's not really so all right pavan didn't we also get some listener questions related to parking in this issue uh we did so abhishek balaji who works at hasgeek uh he's on twitter as bullion balaji uh had this question so he asked what effect do ride sharing services like uber and ola have on traffic congestion hmm. uh ola and uber often end up adding cars on the road hmm. and also how do you account for parking space when cabs end up taking curbside parking spots right the cab drivers wait for the rides on the side of the road but fa- parking fees don't apply since the drivers in the car hmm. so first of all thanks for the question abhishek i think it's a very interesting one and uh, uber and ola regulation is a pet topic of mine so uh, rather than just spend a couple of minutes on it in this episode uh, we promise to do a full on episode on the topic soon what i'd like to talk about today is how parking policies interact with uber and ola hmm. okay uh first it's important to note that in general uh cab aggregator cabs spend less of less proportion of their days sitting parked compared to a private car hmm. yeah however they might end up spending more time staying parked in busy areas 
right so you know waiting for a customer you know waiting in ideal spots next to demand zones mm-hmm. so it's likely that uh, these cabs spend more time in such areas where uh, parking can cause more of a problem hmm. right so they'll often be in some corner of a road and uh, given the nature in which these cabs operate you know i mean there's a customer who will uh, ask for a cab in some corner they have to you know conduct u turns and go wherever they have to so it's possible that these cabs actually contribute more to turbulence and traffic flow and create more of an externality than you know a regular parked car hmm. because there you go to some sort of a parking lot and park it for a while right yeah, so yeah. the going in and coming out is not too much of a public nuisance so how do you solve the sort of congestion that it brings so the first thing is looking at how this has been solved for regular cabs and regular auto rickshaws okay and how is that you have designated auto rickshaw stands cab stands mm. of some sort mm. you can even call them cab zones mm. now in bangalore this has been seen very well uh, they had long negotiations with the airport mm. where this parking was a more systemic problem mm. so eventually the airport had to allocate parking uh to uber and ola and now they have a system there are pickup points and so on right yeah. so what that meant was a fundamental reengineering of the traffic navigation system of the bangalore airport and they've done it pretty well if i may yes but it took a while there was a stop gap solution where mm. i think the uh, cabs had to come through the parking lot so it yeah. used to take up to an hour sometimes to mm. get your cab so all kinds of things were happening mm. but now it's been managed better similar things need to happen in certain high demand areas across the city Hmm. but that comes from the government recognizing these entities as legitimate hmm. and i think so far the problem has been that especially in a city like bangalore where we don't even have black and yellow cabs hmm. we only have auto rickshaws hmm. this has been a bit of a problem but i think some malls and some areas have sort of on their own adapted to it hmm. and something else needs to be done in terms of these zones but beyond that if you argue that look even these cabs are still elite hmm. so even if the government gives these cab zones to them it's actually allocating resources for the for the rich hmm. uh, there is a fair point but ultimately even if you want to charge for parking right whether you charge them from uber and ola directly or from the cabby the cost must be ultimately borne by the customer and currently i don't think we are willing to bear that kind of a cost mm. so while overall paying for parking in a city is actually great for cab aggregators because mm. they change the cost dynamics of uh, using your own car mm. uh, overall uh, i mean if you start pricing everything it will be problematic mm. and ultimately it's about customers and consumers saying hey i am willing to bear this cost because it's the right thing Yeah this is sort of interesting because what these uh, services like Uber and Ola do is that they also provide you an alternative to the public transport uh, that you don't have in your city right yes so- they're fixing a particular gap uh, hmm. in demand Hmm. uh that was only partially fixed by auto rickshaws and um, you know hailing cabs and so on yeah but uh, they come with their own costs i just want to add a disclaimer here Uh, Takshashila is an independent institution that receives uh, donations from a large number of individuals, and this includes Bhavish Agarwal, the co-founder of Ola. So that's a disclaimer out there. So thanks for that question, uh, Abhishek. Hamsini, what uh, would you like to uh, catch us up on? So we've discussed a lot of things in foreign policy in the podcast. We've done China and Pakistan China. and Afghanistan. <laughs> Lots of China. True enough. Uh, so something that I'm talking about today is. 
kind of related to china but not very um it's the quadrilateral the indo us australia japan quadrilateral that uh, met for the first time after 10 years uh, in manila and what's interesting is that uh, the first time these leaders met was in 2007 and there was huge fanfare and they haven't met since and now they have again in the light of you know trump visiting asia and things like that so everyone's again starting to talk about oh what can these four countries do about balancing about maintaining order in the region and things like that now there are two main points here pavan one is that a lot of people say you know this is just to purely balance china and china obviously takes um a negative view of that but the second is that if you take like a realist view of the situation right it's always healthy to have balancers one and two this has always existed this is not a new concept that's come across before quadrilaterals we were talking about various trilaterals you know indo japan australia indo japan us australia japan us at one point there was one proposal that said let's uh, do uh, an inner trilateral of singapore indonesia and australia and an outer <laughs> trilateral of india japan and us uh, and this has been clearly a lot of geography nerds who are also mixing it with the international affairs crowd yeah right? yeah and this is the time when they were trying to reshape the region from 2007 onwards they said no let's just not call it asia this is the asia pacific this is the indo pacific this is right. the indo asia pacific right uh, they were trying to look at how to turn the geography around this is when the us under obama had uh, said that they were going to base 60% of their maritime assets in the pacific region right and that was the grand pivot that's the grand which asia nobody wants to talk about anymore no because th- at that point in time they said oh this is the asian century uh, but all of that just is- a few years later is no longer the asian yeah, century yeah not really um so there are basically two caveats to this whether or not it will fizzle out just like it did in 2007 uh depends on the people in the administration who want to push it through right and the quadrilateral is good for a good many things um it will serve lots of basic geopolitical interests and balancing has always helped in regions where there is a vacuum of power right um the- what's also interesting is india's engaged bilaterally a lot i think in the mm-hmm. past its preference was bilateral engagement and sort of multilateral in terms of g20 and the un and so on yeah yeah but uh, i think this is a positive development i mean india japan relations have been strong india australia relations have been strong so i think india's participation in this quadrilateral uh and institutionalization of it in some meaningful way hmm. uh, will be a good thing right because one of the important things in, in international relations are just transaction costs how do you get people together and do stuff true uh i agree with you but there is uh, we're in a sort of a conundrum because institutionalization is what a lot of people would consider alliances or treaties and we very clearly for the last 70 years or so have stayed away from um that sort of relationship with any country uh but on the other hand if you don't institutionalize it then it's weak what is the point of cooperation of any sort of multilateralism if uh, there is no sort of pledge to it right and in the current scenario, i mean the pledge is not as important as some form of systemic cooperation right i mean if that is established then it is established uh i think rajamohan has an interesting piece today which talks about how india wants to engage in the quad but India also engages with China and Russia uh, in its own trilateral, if you will. Right. Mm. So I think we are in a time of 
fluid alliances. Uh, I think Rajamohan calls it a return to non-alignment because we are doing both. Uh, I have a problem with... Yeah, I think everyone has a problem with non-alignment, but uh, more or less it's are we aligning towards all? Are we aligning towards none? Uh, we need to figure out what direction our foreign policy is heading in this way. And generally, with respect to multilateral initiatives, we join something, start new things, but they very rarely turn into something concrete, which is where I think the Quad is also going to go. The good news, I think, with the Quad is that we've already had some military interoperation that's happening, the exercises in the Bay of Bengal. So the Malabar exercises that you're talking about are just annual exercises between um, Japan and India. So it's not a... So uh, the Quad has quad. to take it to some, some other, other level, level now. Yeah, yeah. All right. So all the things that they have been doing, that the navies have already been doing, can be institutionalized. Maybe that could be one of the ways forward. Right. And it would be the easiest steps to take, actually. And, and in general, I think what the four countries might agree on is sort of enforcing the rule of law, uh, especially when it comes to maritime issues and many other issues, where China has just been a flagrant abuser and saying, you know, whatever we do is the law. And uh, sort of doing a little too much of that. Fair enough. And that's where it all stemmed from initially. Um, but we'll have to see where things develop on the South China Sea front as well as maritime issues in that region. All right. Thanks, Hamsini. Uh, let's come back after the break with the cheat sheet. Over 47% of online users in India have experienced harassment at some point. So if it's two of us inside this recording studio, chances are pretty high that one of us has faced abuse at some point. How do we tackle this? What do we need to do better? Come, let's learn together. Join me on Akanksha Against Harassment at IVM Podcast every Thursday. Let's learn how to make online a safe place together. Welcome to this week's Cheat Sheet, where we discuss the clever ways in which our public money is stolen or public wealth lost. Back in episode 13, we spoke about city storm drains and how pajama ladi contracts were used to siphon money out. What's on this week's cheat sheet, Pavan? Let's go with land this time as we dealt with water last time. Okay. So this is a scam that came from the nether regions of Bangalore. Hmm. So one of the things that happen in most Indian cities is that you have designated development authorities. Okay. Hmm. So, so you'll have the DDA in Delhi, you have the MMRDA in Mumbai, the BDA in Bangalore and so on. One of the traditional jobs of the development authority was to take underused farmland at the outskirts of the city where hmm. they expected the city to grow and develop. Hmm. And they would take uh, the farmland, they would, you know, build roads, build, you know, build a full layout and then auction those sites off to the public. Hmm. Okay. So now, obviously, since this is an outskirt, it's far away. The cost of this land is not very high mm. and definitely much lower than the cost of the land in cities. Now, back in the day, this was the primary way in which new housing stock was added to a city, apart from, you know, certain houses going taller. Mm. Today, of course, private developers are doing a lot more of this and uh, the development authorities play a smaller role mm. and more of a, you know, approval role rather than do it themselves. But... There are still scams that plague these things. Okay. okay. Tell me so, one. So, one of the things that happens is, so say you take an area, hmm. uh, it's whatever, uh, a large 100 hectares or something, hmm. and then you have a number of regular plots that are demarcated and sold. Right. So, the entire idea of the sale is you have to mark the boundaries properly. Hmm. Otherwise, hmm. what piece of land are you selling? 
So what they do is there is a lot of land still left on the road in uh, you know junctions and in areas which are not sites. Okay. Right? So what's done is in the auction process certain people are uh, mistakenly uh, given a plot of land which happens to sit on a road or some place where there is no plot. Okay? So they are intentionally given these mm-hmm. fake plots. Uh-huh. So once they are given these fake plots, the people who have been given them can go and appeal with the BDA saying, "Hey, there's been some error. Hmm. Please change it." Hmm. So the BDA will then say or the officer there will say, "Okay, clearly this is a mistake. Hmm. Uh, this should not have been allotted to you. Here let me give you this other plot of land that we also have in our bank, hmm. and that other plot happens to be a lucrative plot in the middle of Bangalore." Wow. Okay, so as far as the paper trail goes, hmm. you are only your paltry payment, right? So I remember uh, back in the day in these auctions, you know, you could buy a site for 50,000 rupees. Today maybe you can buy it for 2 3 lakhs. You'll get a, you know, Square 60 feet land, by yeah. 40 feet plot, hmm. you know, 20 kilometers down Kanakpura road from Bangalore. Oh right? god. So that's the true value of that site. But uh, so your your paper trail is only linked to that. Hmm. But uh because you have met the right people and greased the right palms in the development authority hmm. you get this you know they might have a few sites lying vacant in the middle of the city somewhere they will pick that up and give it to you instead this is ingenious right so this is one of those things where um uh, i think you know there was a certain amount of cover up that might have happened hmm. you no know, officers getting shuffled around when they try to point a finger at this and so on but it's a standard problem that happens when uh, any of these sites being sold none of them are sort of gis marked hmm. none of them are sort of geolocated so there is no way to tell that you know this is a unique and legitimate plot of land that's being sold hmm. so the inventory that's on sale is uh, of unknown quality and how long ago was this uh not not too long ago but i would not be surprised if there were similar things that were happening elsewhere in the country hmm. and the main thing is this uh, because you don't have a paper trail of that small payment hmm. to that valuable piece of land hmm. uh you can never prove uh, you know that something went wrong unless you know that this is how the scam was happening right because if it was already if it actually appeared on the books that a high value property got sold off for 1 lakh hmm. that can be easily discovered right somebody will take action on hmm. it but because the payment is against this plot of land far away hmm. people don't find out very easily land allocation has always been problematic but yes so this is one good reason why the state should not get into the auction of land and things like that instead of a bangalore development authority there should be a regulatory authority which ensures mm. that such hanky panky doesn't happen mm. but allow private developers to do this mm. and sell it and maybe play a role for you know more affordable housing and things like that mm. so it's a great reason for the state to take a step back and not do these things but the other is it's also a case for technocratization for you know uh, for better corporate governance for these development authorities such that So that's it for this week's Pragati podcast. You can reach out to us with questions or comments on Twitter. Pavan is on Twitter as @juicesdead and I'm on Twitter as @hamsneehitch. So tune in again next week. Remember, now the Pragati podcast is weekly. You can listen to the Pragati podcast on the IVM podcast app or any other podcasting app that you generally use and of course on thinkpragati.com. 
एक्सक्यूज मी भैया एक्सक्यूज मी बोले मैडम मेन्यू में क्या है मेन्यू में सीन अनसीन है पॉडकास्ट है ऑनकोस है साइरस है मेर इन इंडिया रीडिस्कवरी प्रोजेक्ट एम्पावरिंग सीरीज सेक्स वैक्स है आई वी एम लाइक है सिम्पलीफाइड है कीपिंग इट क्वेयर है टिंग्स एंड डेस्टिनेशन है माई नेबर सकरबर्ग है और द फैन कराजे आपको क्या चाहिए एक बार रिपीट कर देंगे क्या रिपीट रिपीट नहीं करता हम आप जाओ आई वी एम पॉडकास्ट डॉट कॉम पे और सुनो ये सब या फिर डाउनलोड करो उनका ऐप सब आपकी उंगलियों पर